0: When I was in junior high, I, uh, I went to school with a guy by the name of Henry Plummer. Henry and Plummer and I played on the, the junior high basketball team together. I, I didn't like Henry. I, I didn't like Henry for, for really actually a lot of reasons. Two primary reasons. were one, he scared me. I, I was always scared around Henry. And, and the other reason I didn't like Henry is because Henry stole my, my basketball socks. And I knew it and he knew it. And there was nothing I could do about it. And so I didn't, I didn't like Henry. Do you know any of those? Do you have any Henrys in your life? There, there's just so many people and so many reasons to dislike some of them. I mean, there's, there's one group of people. This is the people over here that we don't like. That we don't like them for things they did to us, that they hurt us, that they embarrass us, they annoy us, that they drain us, they take something from us. And then we've got another group of people over here, very different from this group. This group over here didn't do anything at all to us. We we dislike them as much as some of the people in this group over here. But the reason we don't like these people is just because of who they are. Might be the color of their skin. Might be their money, lack of or too much of. We got a bias against people sometimes because of their economic standing. Maybe we don't like them because of a position they hold in life, especially if that position resides somewhere above us. So we've got we've got people we don't like because of what they did. We've got people we don't like because of who they are. So many people, so many reasons to dislike. Now, when we come to Christ and we come into this house, that that should all change, shouldn't it? But it doesn't. It, it, It doesn't always change because unfortunately we can come into the house and and just like this group over here, we can we can hurt each other sometimes or. Annoy each other, even embarrass each other. Big congregation like this, a big fellowship like this, where maybe we bring some of our prejudices and biases from out in the world. We bring them into here and look around and all of a sudden in this room, I'm confronted with different skin colors and different nationalities and different economic levels. And so I've got all of a sudden I've come in here and all of a sudden there's people in here. So many people, so many reasons to dislike Even in the church. As you know, disliking people almost seems like a a part of life. Who doesn't have somebody that they don't dislike? That they don't want to be around? That they'd be fine if they never saw again. Who doesn't have people that they're not comfortable around? I mean, it's just so natural. Surely God has to, to understand, right? Actually, we can get a feel for what God has to say. You don't need to turn there. I just want to read these real quickly. Just to kind of get us thinking, in 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God, I'd like to think in this room right now, there's quite a few of us who fall in that category. That would be the bulk of us. At One time or another, hopefully recently, we've looked up and said, I, I love you, God. I, I love you, Lord. So if you've said that, this is talking to you. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother. You're not comfortable around. You don't like. You talk bad about. You'd like it if other people didn't like them. You hate your brother. Now, brother means relationship. It's talking about a church relationship, a Christian relationship. This passage is not necessarily dealing with the people out in the world, unbelievers, that we don't like. Of course, the Bible addresses that, too. It talks about loving our enemies. That's another one. Right here, it's talking about inside the house. Inside the family. If you say, I love God, most of us have, and yet you hate your brother, you're a liar. Wes, It's kind of harsh, isn't it? <laughs> kind of a strong word, especially when it's God saying it. God is looking at you and saying, you are a liar. We ignore this verse, don't we? We just, ooh boy, let's just blow right on past that. Don't want to dwell on this very long. God says, no, you're, you're a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must, must. The one who loves God doesn't say the one who loves God should. Doesn't say the one who loves God ought to give it their very best effort, even though it's hard. No, it says the one who loves God must also love his brother. Jesus had a very similar teaching uh, on this theme in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5:23, "So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come offer your gift. According to God, if I've got a problem with people, if I've got a problem with somebody, I can't even worship." And folks, that's the passage we utterly ignore. I wonder how many of all of us, how many of that's a dumb statement. All of us have come into this house to worship with huge problems with our brother. Absolutely. Unreconciled. And God said, oh, no, 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 you can just leave. Yep. Imagine God. Telling, no, no, you can just leave. Yeah. He said, don't don't worship me. You go take care of things with that person, with those people that you have a problem with. As a matter of fact, Pastor says you, you can't even look to heaven and say, I love you. I want to say. Lord, have you seen some of the people around me? Come on, that, that's not fair. Man, Lord, how, how can you ask that of us? Why would you ask that of us? I'm not going to answer that question today. But I am going to spend about the next six months answering that question. We today are beginning a six-month study of the book of Ephesians. And I'll give you a little heads up right now. Ephesians 1 through 3 is going to tell us why we want to deal with those people. Not just the bad ones, all of them. Why we want to deal rightly in the good relationships and the relationships we're in every day. Why we want to deal rightly in bad relationships. Why we want to deal rightly in ugly relationships. All these different relationships. Ephesians 1 through 3 is going to tell us why we want to get inside those things. Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to tell us how. Short book. Very specific, concrete answers and direction and how to deal in the whole realm of relationships. Now listen, if we don't get this, we're not a part of what God is doing in this world. Doesn't matter how loud you sing, how much you give. Doesn't matter what else you're doing in your Christian life and faith. If you're not a part of this, you're not a part of what God is doing in the world, I did actually say we're going to spend a six months in the book of Ephesians. You you might know. Gosh, that's that's only six chapters long, isn't it? And you're flipping there now, trying to make sure. Yeah, that's only six months. Seems like an awfully long time. There we are. We're going to take today. And next week, and do just an introduction of the book. Today, we're going to kind of get to, to meet the city. We're going to meet the Ephesians. We're going to see how Paul interacted with them, what his relationship with them was. Then next week, we're going to kind of look at the book itself and, and get a feel for the whole. We're going to do a flyby over, over Ephesus and learn a little bit about what is in the whole of this scriptural, of this scriptural passage. We're going to spend two weeks just introducing the book. And then after we do that introduction, we're going to then take 23 Sundays, that's right, 23 messages going verse by verse through the rest of the book. That does seem like a lot, doesn't it? Well, I hope what you're going to find as we do this study and as we walk through it is that sometimes it's good. There's a very rich reward in digging a little deeper. And lingering a little longer. There's, there's a lot of richness in not being satisfied with a casual understanding. And so that's what we're going to try to do. And I believe you're going to find to be, the, the book of Ephesians to be very worthy of six months of time. No less then six months of time, boy, there's a lot of uh, scholars and theologians and people throughout church history that have just given some tremendous weight of testimony to this book and its influence on Christian life. Harold Hohner, one, of, uh, one who's written one of the most uh, profound commentaries, maybe the most well-known commentary on the book of Ephesians, said of this book that it may be the most influential document in the Christian church. John Calvin, called Ephesians, one of his favorite books in the New Testament, he did a sermon series on it, 48 sermons long. So when I get to about 19 or 20 and you're starting to wonder if I'm ever going to end this thing, just be thankful John Calvin's not your pastor. You wouldn't even been halfway there. Uh, John Knox, another very influential leader in church history. When he was dying, right before he died, his wife, he had his wife read to him, from the 48 sermons that John Calvin did on the book of Ephesians. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge said of Ephesians, this is one of the divinest compositions ever penned by man. Many commentators have looked at Ephesians as, as one of the crowns of Paul's writing. And I guess probably next to Romans, Ephesians and Romans have probably had more influence on Christian thought and on Christian spirituality Uh, than any other. So I really believe you're going to find this to be a book well worthy of your time. You're going to find it to be a book that meets your needs, that touches right where you are. Ephesians, you know, every one of us has got issues, issues with God, issues with faith, issues with the church, issues with people, issues with an important relationship, a particular person. You're going to be surprised that in just six short chapters how in-depth and how detailed Paul deals with all of these issues. We really have an opportunity to come out of Ephesians with a greater walk with God, a greater understanding of God. It is going to help us. It is going to meet needs from our from our marriage to problem people to parenting. Uh, it is going to help us. A little trivia about Ephesians. Ephesians is the first book in the New Testament that was called Scripture. That's a very important statement. I didn't say it was the first book written. Actually, Galatians was the first book written in the New Testament. Ephesians, though, is the first one that was recognized and called Scripture by the early church leaders. Polycarp was the individual. I know you probably think about Polycarp a lot. He was the uh, the bishop who first called it Scripture. Now, Scripture is a word, and we throw that around. You'll see in the New Testament, the word scripture being used more often than not. When they say the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. That was a body of material, 39 books, the same 39 books you have in your Old Testament, the exact same words that they were looking at. And those were called the scriptures. Scriptures meant this is a body of writing that's much bigger than the men who wrote them. I mean, they might be big men, Isaiah, Moses, Daniel. It may have been people like that who wrote them, but that's not really the issue. It's the very word of God. That's what the word scriptures mean. And Ephesians was the first New Testament book that was called scriptures. As a matter of fact, Polycarp was writing about the Psalms and he referenced the Ephesians and called it the scriptures. We see this book being written about very early in church history. By early, I mean as as recent as the 90s A.D. and the early 100s. Men like Clement of Rome and Ignatius were writing about Ephesians. Now, what does all that mean to us? It means that this book you and I hold, these six chapters called the Ephesians, this is a book that was very quickly accepted by the church for its relevancy, for its clarity, for its power. It was being widely disseminated among the churches. Ephesians is one that people gobbled up and 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 they gobbled it up quickly. I'm not trying to make Ephesians a more important book than the rest of the New Testament. It's all God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all the word of God and every bit of it has value for our lives. I'm just saying Ephesians is one of those books that, man, the human soul really grabbed around and said, man, I need this. This is exactly where I live. And we see Ephesians being accepted like that throughout the, uh, the early church. Let's think a little bit about the city. Of Ephesus Ephesus is located in uh, what we call Turkey on the on the western side, the western shore of Turkey. I've got a map of it up here. You see that word Asia kind of right in the top center and then down to the left, uh, kind of in the corner before you hit the water. You see the word Ephesus. That's where Ephesus is. You'll notice also there's some numbers around a couple of cities there. There's seven cities that are numbered. Those are the seven cities that John wrote to. When he wrote the Revelation, if you go to Revelation chapter two and three, John addresses several cities. Ephesus was one of those cities. You know, when you stop and think about it, Ephesus really was the center uh, of a lot of different scripture. We've got Revelation two and three. The revelation was sent to Ephesus. We've got the book of Ephesians that was sent to Ephesus. First and second, Timothy. Paul was writing Timothy, this young pastor, wrote those letters, second Timothy, sent them to Timothy, and he was a pastor of a church in, guess what city? Ephesus, that's right. Then you go turn to Acts, you've got all of Acts chapter 19, about half of Acts chapter 20 is about... Ephesus. As a matter of fact, I encourage you this week to read Acts 19 and 20 and you'll get a feel for for Paul's life, his work, his ministry in the city of Ephesus. So we've got a lot of scriptures. Matter of fact, I don't know this for a fact, but I think I'm pretty close. I think once you get outside of Jerusalem, Ephesus may be the next most prominent city dealt with, talked about, worked through inside of. The New Testament. So very profound city there. Ephesus was a, a large city, a large commercial city. It was most well known as the guardian of the temple of Artemis. You see this this temple up here. This was also a, a, it's a temple of a, Rome, of a goddess, Artemis. And the Roman goddess, she was called Diana. She was the mother of all gods. This temple you're looking at right here was built in the 6th century B.C., and it was the, the largest in the Hellenistic world. And it was certainly of a monumental size. The, the first that was built completely of marble. Then it was destroyed and rebuilt in the third century. Uh, and it, it was uh, about the size of a football field. You can't really get a perspective in the picture there. But it's about the size of a football field. And it is one of the seven wonders of the world. Boy, you hear that phrase tossed around a lot. Seven wonders of the world. Well, that's one of them. You know, growing up in Houston, I, I knew that the, the Houston Astrodome was the eighth wonder of the world. But, you know, I got a little bit older and I thought, you know, I think we made that up. I, I don't think the rest of the world knew that was the eighth wonder of the world. But you hear that phrase a lot, the eighth wonder of the world. Well, there actually is seven wonders of the world, and that temple was considered one of them. Now, I know you could not care less about everything I just said. Why, why do we need to know that? Again, this letter is not arriving in a vacuum it is not arriving out there in space somewhere it's real city it's real people and this temple and the worship that took place there is what dominated this city not for a long time for centuries For centuries, Ephesus had a profound impact spiritually on that whole region of the world through the worship of of false gods and and idols. And as you might imagine, if you stop and think, just like if you've got a a big place, something very important in a city today, that temple was a moneymaker. I mean, you had tourists come in to see it. You had people come to worship there. You had to buy souvenirs for the kids. And I'm not joking about the souvenirs. One of the biggest businesses in Ephesus was buying idols. They would come there and they would get some kind of idol to worship. So when we think about Ephesus, when we think about the Ephesians, they are in a city that is engulfed in pagan worship. It is a very spiritual city. And Christianity was coming in and having a profound impact on that. As a matter of fact, Acts 19 tells us that it almost cost Paul his life. The impact Christianity was having on this city was touching the bottom line. It was affecting their revenue at the temple. Uh, as a matter of fact, another major uh, edifice in, in Ephesus was a, a theater that they had there. And we're talking about almost something like we would expect to see in our world today. They had a theater that held 24,000 people. And again, you go to Acts chapter 19 and you'll see that there was a day that that theater was packed and a riot broke out. And again, a number of Christians were almost killed in that riot. And they were rioting over the financial impact that Christianity was having on their false god worship. Now, I mean, folks, Ephesus was a major player, a major city, something for everybody. I mean, guys, we could go there and go to the stadium and see the gladiators and the wild animals and watch people ripped apart. I mean, just a wonderful family time together. Uh, ladies, you could go. Ephesus was known for the Agora, had one of the largest shopping centers in that whole area of the world. Can you imagine? That's where you went to find out what the fashions were, what was going to be hot that year. Uh, you went to Ephesus to find that. If you're an intellectual, Ephesus had a world class library. This is this is what this city was like. Now, I say all that, folks, this is a major world class city. Think in your mind of a New York City, of a D.C., an L.A., a London. You know, we have a tendency to think, man, those cities are so big, so massive, so powerful. What can a church be in there? Hey, in Ephesus, it was having a profound impact. Major world-class city. And the church was turning that city on its head. And it didn't do it through politicizing. It didn't do it through war. It did it through the simple message of the gospel. And as people were receiving the gospel, they were letting it transform their lives. And yes, their relationships. The gospel was touching how they lived, how they related with people. And when the gospel has that kind of very real impact, guess what? It changes a church and it changes a city. And it was changing that city, a major world-class city. It was, the pro- it was the capital of that province. Population-wise, it had about 250,000 people. doesn't sound huge to us today, does it? But you have to remember, this isn't a world that had six billion people. As a matter of fact, in this day and age, they didn't have a half a billion people on the whole planet. So when you start talking about two hundred and fifty thousand people walking into a city of that size, that would have the same feel to a person there that, that it would for you and I to walk into a city of four or five million people. This is a city that that controlled that region of the world spiritually, economically, politically. As a matter of fact, as far as cities go in that world, there was probably only two cities greater at that time, and that'd be Rome and Athens So Ephesus is a major player. Now think about it. This church, this church, if they receive the gospel and they let it touch their lives and they get a hold of God's plan for them, this church is very strategically positioned to literally affect a world. To literally touch an entire world. Man, the right church... The right city? The right time? Could we be that church? I think the Ephesians would say, yes, you can. You can be that church. Let's think for a moment about Paul's relationship with this city. He had several visits to this city. The first one took place in the autumn of 52, not not 1952, but the autumn, just 5-2, autumn of 52. He went there. it's a very short visit. He was just there for a couple of weeks. All we know about that visit is that he went to the synagogue and he he daily, he reasoned with the Jews. That's all, all it really says about that visit. And then he left. The city didn't want him to leave. I mean, just in a couple of weeks, they responded to him very, very quickly. They were very excited about Paul and his ministry there and they they wanted him to stay. And he left behind a man and a wife. He left behind a couple that had been traveling with him, that he'd been discipling, Aquila and Priscilla. He left them behind to to begin helping these new believers and to help this young church kind of get going and and get rolling. He returned to Ephesus in the autumn of fifty three. And this time he stayed for over two and a half years. He again started in the synagogue, but then moved his his ministry to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And the scripture says that he he preached and he taught there every single day. And he was doing miracles and casting out demons, again, having a profound impact on the city. Again, you go to Acts chapter 19. It says when he was in this process there on that second visit, that that there was a group of people probably involved in this temple worship that had gotten wrapped up in magic and and in that kind of a a occultic worship. And, and they were so convicted uh, by Paul's teaching, and they came to Christ, and they repented of their life. And it says that they brought all their magic books. Can you imagine that? Brought all their magic books, and they burned them. And, and, the, and the Bible says that their, those books were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver was about a day's wages for the average wage earner. I mean, if you try to put that in our frame today, what's the average person make in a day? I I don't know, $100? I don't know, what would be the average wage earner get in one day? Multiply that by 50000 And that was the value of these books. Do you see the kind of impact that Christianity, that God's Word, that, that Paul was having in this city? He left Ephesus, went to Jerusalem, and that's where he was arrested. And, and, and really, his life was in danger. He was arrested by the Romans, but the Jews wanted to kill him. And so the Romans took him out of there. They took him to Caesarea, and he was in prison in Caesarea for two years. They would have let him go, but he appealed to Caesar. As a matter of fact, one of the governing officials said, Paul, we'd have let you go, but since you appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so he went to Rome. And he was in Rome. He was in prison there for two years. Now, that wasn't such a bad deal, being in prison in Rome. He was put under what we probably call house arrest. He kind of had a, a private apartment what what made it like prison was he was literally chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day 7 days a week can you imagine that constantly chained is somebody like that chained to this guard. Now, Paul was writing the Philippians. He said, man, this is awesome. This guy's stuck with me. He has to hear everything I say. He reads everything I write. Paul could have visitors and, and that guard would be a part of their conversations and he, he's writing the Philippians. Man, these guards are coming to the Christ left and right after being chained to me. I mean, everybody knew in the, among the Roman guards, I'm not sure who's chained to who in there. But he was having a profound influence. He looked at it as an opportunity. But again, I said, Paul could have people come and visit him. And we see all kinds of names listed in the New Testament that came and, and visit with him. Some of them, you know, some of them you recognize Timothy went to visit him. We know him by his books of the Bible. Mark, the gospel of Mark, Luke, the gospel of Luke. They went and visited. Him. Well, when these people came and visited, they would leave there with notes from Paul, teachings from Paul, messages from Paul. They would leave there in some cases with the word of God. As a matter of fact, while Paul was in this this private house arrest in Rome, he wrote four books of the Bible. One of those was Ephesians. The letter we're going to be studying was written while he was in this Roman imprisonment, along with Philippians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Now, we know the date of that imprisonment. It was 60 to 62 A.D., so if you kind of think, OK, he was there in autumn of fifty three, he was there about two and a half years, he probably left around fifty six, fifty seven. And now it's maybe as late as sixty two. While he knew the Ephesians very well and they cared very much for him, it's been about five years since he last since they last saw him. when they get that book, when they get the letter that's been written to them, it's been about five years since they last saw him when they receive this book that we're going to spend six months studying. Now, that's kind of a a feel for the city. And again, folks, I know a lot of this information you're thinking, okay, I got these issues in my marriage. I got this problem I've got concerned about this week. I don't know what you just what is this up? Did he say Tyrannus and they burned books? What was he talking about? I know a lot of this. You think, what? what does this have to do with anything? You know, as, as we study this book, I want you to see it was arriving in a real place is arriving in a real city and real people with marriage problems, with parenting challenges. That's what we're going to see in Ephesians. That's who was reading this. It was arriving with, to real people who were trying to make sense out of God, who were trying to make sense out of the spiritual life. They had tax problems. They had sewage problems. They had traffic issues. It was a large, crowded city. All of the same things that you and I live with and experience and deal with. That's where this book was arriving. A real place, real people, and a real city. And and, and I I hope it's valuable for us to take a little time and just see that. But before we leave, before we come back next week and dive into the book and get an overview of the book, I want to leave you with a couple of words. A couple of words, not just to prepare us for next weekend, but really words I want you looking forward forward to and, and listening for all during the next six months. These are words that are prominent themes we're going to find throughout the book of Ephesians. One of those words is walk. Walk is an activity. Walk is somewhere you go. When we talk about walking the Christian life, that's what we live. We're going to learn about a a walk of unity, a a walk of love, a walk of light, a walk of holiness, a walk of wisdom. Ephesians is going to introduce us to how we live in this kind of walk. uh, Another word that we're going to see is love. You know, there's six short chapters in Ephesians. We're going to see the word love pop up 20 times 20 times in just six chapters. You know what? You know what drives God's plan for your individual life? You know what drives His plan for our church? His love. That, that's what's driving Him with you. Love. Another word that we're going to see is spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit has always been the kind of the confusing part of the Trinity, hasn't it? We feel like we got a pretty good grasp maybe on God the Father and we certainly can visualize and, and physically uh, see uh, the God the Son, Jesus Christ. But boy, that Holy Spirit, that's a confusing one. Man, we still call Him a ghost, don't we? What is that? You know, Ephesians is a book, uh, maybe one of the most prominent books in the New Testament that teaches us about the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn a lot about this third member of the Trinity. We're going to learn when He enters our life why He enters our life, what He does in and through our life, we're going to learn that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can make Him sad. You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at God as a cold, impersonal being that's, that's way off out there in space, a force that doesn't feel. Man, there is nothing in the, new, in the Scriptures Old or New Testament that communicates or shows God in that way. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Another key word is the word body. This may be one of the most important words in Ephesians. We are a body, a united body. We're united with people of different skin colors. We're united with people of different nationalities. We're united with people who've hurt us embarrassed us, annoy us. This is the work and the plan of God to bring us all together, united as one body. As a matter of fact, another key word is the word mystery. And the mystery is about that body. So look for those in these coming months. The evil one. You know, as Americans, we think we're independent, don't we? Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want. I do it when I want. I decide how I'm going to live. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you have never drawn a breath on this planet in which you weren't controlled. You're controlled by the evil one. Until the day that you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. Until that day, you were a part of the evil one's family and you're serving the evil one's plans and purposes. Then I asked Christ into my life. And unfortunately, even then, I can still run back over and answer to the evil one. But now I have the option. I don't have to answer to him anymore. Now I have the option of yielding control of my life to the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians is going to talk to us about that process and what it looks like and what that means on a daily basis to have the Holy Spirit controlling my life instead of the evil one. Another key word in this book is spiritual. Remember, where's this letter arriving? It's arriving at a very spiritual city. These are I didn't say right spiritual. Spiritual can be positive or negative. But these are a people who think spiritually. They, they, they've had that all around them their whole lives. And Ephesians is going to talk about the spiritual life. It opens. The bulk of the first chapter is about our spiritual blessings. It closes. The bulk of the sixth chapter is about our spiritual warfare. Ephesians is going to challenge us, warn us, encourage us that there is a realm beyond the physical. There is a realm beyond what we can see and touch. And we'd better be living in light of the spiritual realm. These are some of the things that we're going to see in Ephesians that you want to be looking for as we go throughout this time. What are we going to learn in Ephesians? I'll tell you one of the great things, you're going to learn how much you're loved. You're going to learn about a love that that absolutely, you you can't measure it. You can't measure how high or wide or deep is God's love for you. We're, We're going to learn about how the gospel transforms lives And relationships. You know, I keep using that word relationships. Have you ever thought about this? Where do you live the Christian life? You live it in relationships. If you've got no relationships in your life, where do you live out the Christian faith? The bulk of our lives, the bulk of what shows I'm a follower of Christ is how I relate with the good relationships. The bad relationships and the ugly relationships. I need all of them, not just good ones. I need all of the spectrum of relationships to live out the fact I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians is going to show us what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and takes control and transforms my life, transforms my relationships. And then you know what God wants to do? He wants to take my life that's been transformed and he wants to take your life that's been transformed. And a couple of y'all up there who've been transformed and some of y'all back there and, and over here. And he wants to sew us all together. He wants to unite us and make us a one body. And as he brings all these transformed lives together, because he doesn't transform me just so I can be happy and successful. No, he transforms me to connect me with others who've been transformed. By the power of His word, the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, He combines us all together, and then we're positioned to change a world, to touch a world. That's what God's plan for you and for Colonial Heights Baptist is. Man, doesn't sound exciting? Woo! Go get the world, man. That's a big rah-rah speech, isn't it? Man, let's go get it for the Gipper. It is exciting. If only we believed it. If only we believed it. You know what Ephesians is going to tell us? It's going to say, oh, I wish you'd believe it. Let me tell you something. If we all get our heads together and we think as big as we can think about changing a world, God says, oh, you haven't even begun to imagine. You you can't even begin to think about what I want to do through you as an individual. Connected in a church. We don't think we're going to change a world. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. Because that's exactly what God wanted to do with our meeting today. And our meeting next week and our meetings in the week ahead is bring us together and position us to change a world. All that we might believe it. Let's pray. Father, I I pray we would believe it. That God, we would not live to just survive. That we would not live to just put up with that person. That we would not live just to get from one bill to the next. Oh God, could we really believe something so grand, so great, we can't even imagine it. That's what you want to do in our lives and in Colonial Heights Baptist. Lord, I commit to you, and Father, I pray that I'm praying on behalf of all of us. I pray this is a genuine and true prayer of all of us. God, we commit to you the next six months or so. We commit to come, to hear, to understand what you have said through your servant Paul to that church in Ephesus that we would see what it has to say to our lives today and that, God, we would respond to it. We would leave here every single weekend saying, what do I do with what God has said to me today? Oh, God, we've seen You can move in. You can grab a hold of a world-class city and turn it on its head just by a body of people who believe the gospel and let it change their lives and relationships. May we be that church and God, may we show you our faith. May we show you our belief by our commitment to be here, to hear, to understand and to apply what we learn as we study this book. We commit this time to you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray it. Amen. Boy, how exciting to think my life will no longer be controlled by the evil one. I have an option. I have a choice. To let the Holy Spirit direct what's going to happen in me. You know when that begins? It begins the moment that we ask Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord. We turn from placing our faith and trust in ourselves and place all of that trust in what Jesus did for us at the cross. If you've never come into that relationship with Jesus Christ, could I encourage you today to come into that relationship? He invites you today. We come into a time of invitation. I hope you'll step out of these aisles and come down here and tell one of these pastors, I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us pray with you for a moment and talk with you for a moment about how you can have that relationship. And then you can come in here and find out how and where the Holy Spirit entered your life and gave you a brand new life, a life that will last forever, a life that is forgiven of all sins. That's what God has for you today. Would you come and receive that? And boy, I think you already can tell from the book of Ephesians, God wants us in a church. His plan is not for loners. His plan is for a body, a people united in Christ. Boy, if you don't have a church family, and you sense that God is calling you to this church family, what a great way to begin a study of this book than to say, I belong to this family. I'm going to join my life right here and see what God wants to do. What is God calling you to today? A relationship in Christ? A relationship in this church? As we stand and as we sing, you say yes to the Lord Jesus.